Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. And today, I am joined by one of the country's leading applied behavioral scientists, Kurt Nelson. Kurt is also a podcast host. Kurt has a strong understanding of human motivation, and today he's going to be showing all of us how we can drive positive behavior and motivate change. So, Kurt, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Curtis, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and I'm happy to be here. Oh, we're happy to have you. Why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am a behavioral scientist, which basically means I try to understand why we as humans do what we do. So it's a psychological background of a PhD in IO psych, where I take a look at human dynamics, human behavior, human decision-making, and try to understand what are the underlying causes behind why we do things. And one of the things that we realize from studying humans and their behaviors is that, you know, we don't always act in ways that we think we should, or that we think we would act in certain uh, situations or environments. And so one of the things that we try to understand is when do those, uh, kind of irrational or, or, you know, different types of behaviors happen as opposed to when they, uh, we do act in the ways that we want to do. And so those are the, some, some of the interesting pieces that we do. And a lot of my work is really focused in on employee motivation, employee engagement. Uh, and so really trying to understand what are the motivational factors behind how people get to do uh, and want to do what they want to do. Where you're one of the top applied behavioral scientists in the country. So explain to people what applied behavioral science is. Yeah. So also explain how you got started. Oh, fantastic. So applied behavioral science is basically just taking the research that, um, you know, the the, uh, researchers who are out there studying this in uh, the university setting typically, and they're going out and doing studies and research uh, applications and trying to figure out some of the, the mechanisms behind why we do what we do. And the applied people are taking that and we're applying it into real world situations, into work situations, into our life situations. How do we change? How do we drive the appropriate behavior chain? How do we persuade people? All of those types of factors that uh, impact any type of kind of human behavior, human decision-making component within that. And, you know, the, the story behind how I got interested in this, um, you know, I've always had a fascination with, with people, right? You, you're working in any type of job, in any type of situation, whether it's a nonprofit, for-profit, government, it doesn't matter where you are, but you're dealing with people. You're dealing with others and you have to understand how they're reacting to you and how you're reacting to them. And so it's always fascinating to me, um, you know, how that works. And so I actually had an, I was getting my MBA way back many years ago, and I took a class on consumer behavior and consumer behavior was really just basically understanding why 
people buy things um, when they do. And so one of the interesting pieces is that we will buy something if it's priced at $2.99, much more likely than if it's priced at $3. And you go, oh, well, that seems strange. It's a penny. And actually, if you price something at $3.01, there's no difference in, in the amount that people buy that same product. But if you price it at $2.99, still a penny different. Um, people buy it a lot more. And it seems irrational, right? That penny difference between $2.99 and $3 and $3 and $3 and one cent, same penny, doesn't matter. You know, and in the big scheme of things, pennies don't really matter that much. But because of the way that our brain interprets it, um, we are much more likely to buy something at that $2.99. And that just seemed really crazy to me. And then there are a number of other factors that come into that. And so I wanted to study and understand why. Why do people buy something at $2.99 as opposed to $3? And why do people, um, you know, go, uh, why can't you get a taxi cab on a rainy day in New York City when all economists would say, oh, that's when the taxi cab driver should be out in force because it's easier to get a ride. And so they're going to be making more money. But what indeed happens is that taxi cab drivers don't stay out because they make the amount of money they want to make in a day and then they cut, then they they call it off. And so all of a sudden you don't have as many taxi drivers out there. So a number of those types of different things have that just really kind of intrigued me. And that's what got me interested in this. And I started to study it. Explain how behavioral science can help people make positive change in their lives. Mm. So Curtis, that's a really great question because, you know, when we think about behavioral science, and again, when I, when I talk about behavioral science, it's, it's a pretty wide swath of, of research and different pieces that people are doing, but it's really looking at um, why are we making the decisions that we make and why are we doing the behaviors that we do? And so if we can understand how that works, we can be better informed and make better decisions and do the behaviors that we want to do as opposed to doing things that may not be in our self-interest, um, best self-interest in the long run. And so just I'll, I'll give an, a, a little bit of an example on this. So when we think about you know, the behaviors that we do on a day in and day out basis, you know, oftentimes those behaviors are, act, are being run at a level of consciousness that we are just, we're doing habits or routines and we're not really thinking about them. And so in those instances, that's done for a reason. We've evolved that way for a reason. And oftentimes it's the right thing to do. We don't want to have to really think about you know, jumping out of the way when we hear a, a car horn and we're crossing the street, right? We, we know that we want to be moving really fast in those instances. But if we're making a big kind of uh, decision, maybe even not a big decision, a medium-sized decision, you know, um, should, I, should I go along with this person who is trying to sell me something and I'm being in, you know, they're, they're swaying me with all these components around all these other people are doing it. Look at the great value that it is and trying to persuade me in a number of ways. Well, if I understand how we typically respond, that we are more likely to say yes to things because other people are doing them, even if it's not necessarily something for us, or if they frame something in a in a manner that is, um, hey, this was we priced this at at three hundred dollars, but for you, I'm going to give it to you at a hundred dollars. Um, 
And so that's a big discount, but we're framed in a, a various different pieces that it's up there high. If we understand that, we can make better decisions and we can have better behaviors around that. And so the applied side of this, I think, is really interesting because when we as humans understand ourselves better, then we are much more likely to um, make better decisions. And that, I think, in, in the long run is a really good thing for people and it, it helps them live a better life. Well, let's talk about self-motivation. G- give people some tips on uh, self-motivation. Uh, so motivation is one of those really interesting pieces. And so um, I will tell you, everybody has a different motivational profile. So what motivates you, Curtis, is going to be different than what motivates me. That's different than what motivates my wife. That's different than motivates you know the person down the street from us. And so we all have a unique type of motivational profile. Now, that's not saying that we don't have commonalities, that we don't have things that uh, drive us. And when we think about the big picture, when we're looking at the research and kind of how how the, the researchers talk about this, there's extrinsic rewards, right? Those are those things outside of us that we we want. And so we will do things in order to get them. It's the paycheck, it's the it's the uh, title, it's the it's the award that we get at the end of the year all of those types of things that are extrinsic to us. And then there's intrinsic motivation. And the intrinsic motivation is because we like to do, we get an enjoyment out of what we're doing, whether that be playing a game, whether that be reading, whether that be, you know, learning something new, all of those are kind of an intrinsic kind of motivation. I do it because somehow it brings me fulfillment. It brings me some sort of joy. And the piece of this is, is that motivation, particularly when we're trying to motivate ourselves, um, we often try to rely on intrinsic motivation for all of it, which is really good. Intrinsic motivation is a very powerful motivator, and I don't want to discount that, right? Um, But we don't always use extrinsic motivation. And so, um, for instance, if I'm trying to motivate myself to lose weight and to go to the gym, you know, I, I think that it's all about willpower and I just need to get myself motivated and go and do it and make sure that that happens every single day. The fact of the matter is, and Katie Milkman, who is a, a researcher at, at University of Pennsylvania, has done a lot of uh, really good research on this. And one of the things that she talks about is, is, you know, you can tie an extrinsic reward to things that you um, want to do for yourself. So she uses the example of going to the gym. And instead of just going to the gym and depending upon that willpower in order to do that, what she did is she said, look, I am only going to listen or be able to, to watch this, this movie or listen to this book on tape when I'm at the gym. I'm only going to leave that DVD there in my locker. And the only time I get to listen to it is um, uh, when I'm there. So she's tying in this uh, want that she has, this, this intrinsic thing that brings her joy and pleasure with something that maybe isn't as, as uh, intrinsically motivating going to the gym and working out. But because she's tying those two things together, she's able to um, create an environment where she's more likely to go to the gym and work out and do those and achieve those long-term goals that she wants to do. You know, another way of thinking about this is that we often try to say that our willpower is the thing that's going to get us going or the motivation. If I just have enough motivation, if I believe and I want this bad enough, then I will do it. And all of the research shows that the context and the environment that we're in is a huge um, 
element within why we do stuff. And so the other piece of self-motivation is you need to set up the environment that you're in, in order to make sure that you are motivated um, as much as you can. Again, use an example. And this was a story that um, I don't remember where I heard it from, but gentleman wanted to learn to play guitar, but he would come home from work, had the best intentions of playing the guitar and doing different things. But what would he do when he comes home from work? He would sit down on the couch, TV's right in front of him. He'd flip on the TV. He'd end up watching TV for the next two or three hours. Then he's too tired to do anything. So what he did is he took the TV, he moved it out of the living room, put it into a back room, and he put his guitar out in in that living room. So again, when he came home from work, what did he do? Sat down on that couch. Now there's no TV out there, but his guitar is right next to him. So what does he do? He picks up the guitar, starts to practice the guitar. So it's those types of things that you can do to keep yourself self-motivated is figure out what is the environment that I'm in? What are the extrinsic rewards that I can tap into? And what are those intrinsic? Again, I don't want to discount that, but you have to make sure you understand what the intrinsic rewards are and you leverage all of those in order to make sure that you are self-motivating yourself. Well, let's talk about employee motivation. What can companies do to create powerful incentives if they have a smaller budget. Yeah. So in companies that have, you know, an, a smaller budget, oftentimes when we, we work with companies, they use one lever and that's money, right? This idea that, all right, if I pay you more, you will do more for me. And what we find, um, and this is both an anecdotal from the, the work that we've done as well as the research, is that oftentimes what people are looking for isn't necessarily more money, even though they will tell you that. If you, if you do a survey of employees, 70, 80% of the time, they're going to say, I want, you know, if you give me more money, I will be more motivated. And what we see is that that's not always the case. Again, what you're trying to do is set the environment, set the context up. What people like to do is they want to feel like, yes, money is important. Those, those financial resources are there. It's always going to be part of the motivational factor. And you, you, you know, unless you're in a volunteer organization, you're paying people, you're doing all those sorts of things. But there are other things. You, you need to set up a social environment where people feel like they belong, where they feel like they're part of a team, where I don't want to let my coworkers down, where we feel like we are trying to accomplish something that is meaningful, that ties into something of my personal um, goals or that I feel is a desirable outcome. And those are two of the main drives that we have, this drive to belong, this drive to kind of make sure that we are uh, achieving something and having purpose in, in our work and in our meaning. And the other thing is that we can, we're often, you know, motivated by challenges. And so what are the goals that we have? What are the, what are the ways that we're keeping people uh, interested in the work that they're doing. And um, there's a model of employee motivation called the four drive model. It was developed by Nitin Noria and Paul Lawrence, and they were both from Harvard, starting in the early 2000s. Lots of good research on this. And they talk about this as the four drive model. And four drive one, the first drive is the drive to acquire and achieve, which is that money, the awards, everything I talked about. Next one is bond and belong which is that social bonding piece that I did that I talked about. Then there's the challenge and comprehend, which is that piece that I'm just saying that goals, what are the goals we have? What are the learning things that we have? And then drive to defend, which is the purpose. It's aligning with this purpose that I have. And if companies can figure out how to mix all four of those together in a way, they don't have to, it's not saying that you don't pay your people. 
um, and you don't pay them well, but you need to make sure that you have a mix of all four of those in order to really tap into the motivation that people have and the employees are going to drive that much further. So, Talk about some behavioral biases that can keep us from our full potential. <laughs> we have a lot of behavioral biases. And if people are interested, I, I urge them just go out and, and Google behavioral biases or go out to Wikipedia. There's, they have a wonderful list of various different behavioral biases that behavioral scientists have identified. A couple of the big ones, right? And so I'll, I'll talk about a couple of the big ones. One is called loss aversion. This idea that if I have uh, a loss of $100, that the pain of that loss is about twice as much as the pleasure I would get from finding $100 on, on the ground. So if I was to go walk down the, down the block and I see a $100 bill, I pick it up, I get some joy from that. I get some pleasure, right? There's some satisfaction that I have. And I put it in my pocket and I go and I'm all kind of happy about that. And then I get to the store and I realize, oh, wow, I had a hole in my pocket that that $100 bill fell out. The pain that I feel from losing that $100 is twice as much as the pleasure that I got from, from getting it. And that comes with a lot of different things, not just money, but you know any type of loss that we feel that we are more inclined to fear the loss than the equivalent gain. And so that impedes us, right? That, that makes, um, when we think about risk, we're often risk averse because of that. When we think about change, um, since change is unknown, there's a there's a percentage of times that uh, even if we think the change is going to be positive, it might end up negative. And so that weighs, outweighs the positive benefits that we have from things. And so it can impede us from doing the things that are going to make us a positive change in our lives. So that loss aversion is, is a big one. Um, another bias is one that's called confirmation bias. And this one you might have heard about. It's this idea that our brain's are doing a lot of stuff in the background as we're as we're taking in information, as we're thinking about different pieces. And our brains are wired in such a way that when information comes in that supports a pre-held belief that we have. So if I believe that, you know, red cars are better than blue cars, for whatever reason that would be, and I see some information out there that might say, hey, red cars are really good, um, but also blue cars are really good. When I see that information, what I take is that red cars are really good. And I actually, my brain doesn't even process that blue cars are good as well. It just processes that the red cars are good. And so what it does is it reinforces our pre-held beliefs. And if there's contradictory evidence, so in other words, if I saw something out there that said, wow, red cars are really poorly built. And so red somehow you know, makes the metal decay faster in your car. My brain actually, usually what we should do is go, oh, wow, I take that information in and I might reassess my, my belief about red cars. But most of the time, what we end up doing is our brain does these mental hurdles and different things, gymnastics, and we discount, oh, that that researcher is biased. That researcher doesn't know what they're doing or that that information is, is incorrect. It's fake news, whatever it would be. And we discount it. And we actually, sometimes we have what's called the backfire effect. And if we realize that there are things against us, we'll double down on our pre-held belief even stronger than when it was originally done if we hadn't seen contradictory evidence. And so confirmation bias is one of the biggest biases that hold us back. Because if we're really trying to be 
live a life where we want to live this world that has, uh, you know, based on reality, based upon the facts, based upon how things are, we want to make sure that we're not, that our brain isn't fooling ourselves into believing things that we already pre-believe. And that ties back into our social identity, which is another bias that we have that we will align with groups that we identify with. Even if we don't necessarily agree with everything that the group does, all of a sudden we interpret what the group is doing as our own identity. And therefore we become part of the group. And there's some elements of evolution and tribalism and various different pieces within that. And there's a whole wide swath of these types of biases that are out there, many of them kind of influencing how we make decisions or the way that we behave. And they're all really fascinating because oftentimes they're contrary to what we believe we would be doing in, in the perfect world. Give people some tips on better decision-making as well as building and keeping healthy habits. Mm, great question. So um, when we think about uh, decision-making, one of the things that we tend to do, and again, this goes back to confirmation bias that I already talked about, but this idea that we um, make decisions and we either are fully in or it's like a yes, no, it's a black, white, it's all of these types of things. And really good decision makers um, are people who do a couple different things. As one is before we make, and, and again, I'm not saying about every decision that we make, if I'm going to have put cream in my coffee in the morning, or if I'm going to, you know, get the large, you know, Big Mac versus a, you know, a, a chicken sandwich, uh, different pieces along that line. But a lot of the decisions that we make, what we want to do is we want to say there and try to figure out, all right, if I make decision X, what, what's the likelihood that the outcome is going to happen? And what we tend to do is we either say, you know, it's 100% or it's zero is our kind of our default. And in reality, it's never that, right? There's always an element of chance that comes into play. There's an element of other factors interpreting, or we may not just have all the information available. And so even if we can go and when we make decisions, we go, I'm, I'm about 80% sure on this, or I'm 90% sure, or even 99.9% .9 sure. What that does is it changes the way that our brain processes information. And, and what we're doing is then when new information comes in or when we are looking back at what we were doing, we can reassess. We can reassess how those decisions are made. And so we can learn. And one of the big things about decision-making is that the more we can learn about how we make our decisions, the better that we can be in those decisions that we make. So in other words, if I understand that I thought that this was going to be an 85% chance surety and it turned out to be false, well, when I come into another situation that is similar, I, I can take that information and I can go, oh, last time I thought this was about 80%. I still think it's about 70%, but now do I, do I weigh that decision differently because now the likelihood of success is 70% instead of 80 or 85%? Yeah, I will. It will change how I make that decision. The other thing from a decision-making um, perspective, Annie Duke, who is a wonderful, she used to be, she was a world poker champion, and now she gets into decision-making and, and um, has some wonderful popular books out there. Um, she talks about this idea that we put too much emphasis oftentimes on decisions where we shouldn't have to, we don't really have to 
think about them so much and put a lot of energy into them. Should I get the fish or should I get the steak at this restaurant? Particularly if it's a restaurant that I come back to over and over and over again. You know, the downside of making a bad decision is maybe a meal that I'm not going to enjoy quite as much as if I would have ordered the steak or if I would have ordered the fish or vice versa. So the idea that we weigh, oh my gosh, am I going to have the steak? Am I going to have the fish? Wow, my, this is, and you, you, you know, kind of worry about that and you work over it is, is counter, counterintuitive, not counterintuitive, but it, it, it doesn't help us in the long run. What we should be doing is making big decisions like, am I going to buy this house or not buy this house? Is it a job that I'm going to take? Am I going to take that job? Am I going to switch jobs? You know, who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? All of those things. You should definitely be putting a lot of effort and energy into those. What I have for dinner, you know, do I wear the, the blue shirt or the white shirt? Ah, that's not, not things that we should be putting as much emphasis on. Well, earlier we talked about how people can apply behavioral science to their personal lives. Let's talk about how they can apply behavioral science to their work lives. Mm. Well, once again, I mean, there's a lots of different ways. And when we talk about the behavioral biases that we mentioned before, oftentimes those come into play, not just in our personal life, but into our work environment. And so if I'm a leader, if I'm a manager and understanding some of those biases that my employees might have, or that my customers might have, if I'm in sales or any kind of customer service environment, or even just, you know, the person behind the counter at, at a Walmart or at McDonald's, understanding why people do what they do can lend it to ourselves so that we can respond better to other people when we go, gosh, they're acting very strange or, or not in a way that I would expect because we can hopefully understand them better, but also it can help us in, in ourselves and saying, how am I showing up to other people in these situations? And what are the, some of the biases that I might have so that I can be better informed about what it is that I'm doing that might be maybe not as good as it could possibly be. And one of the things that I often talk about with leaders is just, again, how do you motivate people? What are the, what are the ways that you are incentivizing your people to do things? Are you setting up the systems and, and different aspects of that? But also one of the really interesting things um, in a lot of the work that we do is around communication and employee communication. And there's really great research out there that says the way that we frame how we communicate can make a big impact on how people perceive what we're trying to say, how they believe it, and what they do subsequent with it. So, for instance, I'll give you a research that, that I think is one of my favorite little research studies. There was a college, and they were trying to get people to register for a class before August 1st, right? And so they sent half of this group of people to register for this class, and they sent them a message that said, hey, register before August 1st, and you'll get a 15% discount. And then they sent another group of people, the other half of people, a message exactly the same, except for they framed it differently. They said, register after August 1st and it'll pay a 15% penalty on, on this. So again, it's 15% regardless of which one you got. So economically speaking, there's no different. A classical economist would say, it shouldn't matter how you word it because it's the exact same dollar figures that you have. But what ended up happening is that about 69% of the people who said they got a discount registered before August 1st, but 92% of the people 
who um, got the, the message that said there's going to be a penalty. And again, this goes back to loss aversion when we talked about that, right? A penalty feels like you're taking something away. So it's a loss. And so people are going to be more likely to register early because of that message. Now, you don't always want to use a loss message depending on a variety of other factors, but the way that we communicate actually sets the expectations up in our brains and our brains process that information differently. So the way that we talk about something from a work perspective, if I'm a leader, even if I'm a somebody who's doing sales or working with other customers or even with my coworkers, if I am very purposeful in how I'm communicating, I can much I can have a much better result at the end of the day. Talk about how behavioral science is being used to influence us and what we can do to protect ourselves. <laughs> so think about this again when I went back. Um, what got me interested in this from consumer behavior and that an object or a product that's priced at $2.99, we're much more likely to buy than a product that is at $3, even though relatively saying it's, it's there's not much difference in there. But the way that our brains process it, that is they go, they see the two first. And so the two anchors us down at a lower level. So we believe that it's a, it costs less. It's more, much more valued, right? It's a better value than the $3 one. And even compared to three versus three or one. So always think about this from the perspective of hey, what are those things that are going on in my environment that might be influencing me that I am not paying attention to? And are those things, uh, you know, sometimes those are fine, right? We wanted to buy that product and it's $2.99 versus $3. I'm saving a penny. Great. But if I didn't necessarily want that and I'm just buying it because, oh, I think $2.99 is a great value and I'm getting some big deal out of this, well, then maybe I should be thinking about that, reassessing my, the, my decisions on, on that. And so there are a number of different things as we think about the world in which we operate, the world that is going on outside, that all of these things are coming in that try to persuade us, right? If other people are doing things, we are more likely to do that, right? If somebody is in a position of authority and they say, this is a good thing, we're more likely to, to believe that it's a good thing. And again, objectively, we should be looking at things uh, for their value in and of themselves as opposed to because other people like them or somebody in authority says that's the case. Now, oftentimes those are easy outs. And oftentimes, again, if it's not a big decision, that's fine. Not a big, not a big deal. But if it's something that is important to you, then you should be making sure that you understand all of those factors that are influencing why you think something is the way it is. And if we look out in the world today with uh, all the different divisions and political strife and a variety of other things, you know, again, behavioral science can help us understand, hey, maybe I'm believing this because you know, other people that, I re that um, are in the same group that I'm in are believing this, and it doesn't necessarily agree with what I believe at the core. And so there's a variety of other factors that you think about from a behavioral science perspective that come into play for that. Tell us about your podcast. Tell us what it's about and how listeners can check it out. Yeah. So our podcast is called Behavioral Grooves. Um, we, uh, my co-host, Tim Houlihan and myself, we talk to behavioral scientists um, and practitioners. So people who are doing the research on behavioral science and also those people who are working uh, either in government or in uh, the for-profit or nonprofit world who are applying these principles into the work that they're doing. And what we try to do is we try to take it and make it fun. We 
we laugh a lot. We talk about uh, the application of the principles and, and how that applies and why it's important for people. And we've interviewed everybody from Nor- Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman and, and Richard Thaler to, you know, uh, the, uh, a nonprofit gentleman uh, in uh, Kenya who is working with teenage kids and using cartoons and comics in order to change their behavior. And he's an accidental behavioral scientist. He has never studied behavioral science, but all of the things that they're doing around there are things that are impacting, um, uh, that are using behavioral science principles. And so we try to unpack what is going on in both of those situations from the Nobel laureates and making it really accessible to everyday people about what what that science says to people who are applying things. And we're saying, Hey, look at this, the way that they're doing this is actually taking and applying these behavioral science principles and you can do the same thing. And so uh, we laugh a lot. We have a lot of fun and uh, it's uh, we have 300 plus episodes, 170 countries. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. You have any upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about? You know, the one that we're going to be for this fall is um, we're doing a history, a five-part series along with another podcaster, um, Andy Luttrell um, of Opinion Science, which is another behavioral science type um, podcast. And we are doing a five-part series that is on the history of behavioral economics. So behavioral science uh, the way that it is mostly interpreted today is kind of an offshoot of behavioral economics. And behavioral economics is a relatively new research field. It's kind of combining psychology and economics. And in the 70s and 80s, that was kind of an unheard of thing. And there were a few researchers out there, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who kind of started and spearheaded this. And we have, you know, Amos Tversky has unfortunately passed away, but Danny Kahneman is, is still alive and we were able to talk to him. Richard Thaler, who is another Nobel laureate, we talked to him as well as some of the other kind of luminaries in that field. And it's going to be really fascinating. And it's going to tell the story of how this happened and what were some of the underlying uh, elements that drove the, the combination of behavior, uh, behavioral economics into, into reality and how that then is changing the way that not only research is being done in both fields, but also in the real world. Throw out your contact information, website, social media, so people can stay connected with you. Yeah. So, I mean, the best way we're, we're out on Twitter, so you can check out behavioral groove. It's behavioral groove, but it's without the E at the end. So you can check out that Twitter. My personal Twitter is um, uh, motivation guru. So again, easy there. Uh, you can check out the website at www.behavioralgrooves.com. That actually has the E and the S at the end. Um, and then, you know, uh, LinkedIn is also a great way if you're any type of, of business. And that's, that's Kurt W. Nelson and search me there. Close us out with some final thoughts, maybe something that we didn't talk about that you would like to talk about or just any final thoughts for the listeners. So one of the big things that I find really fascinating is that the expectations that we have, the ideas that we have about things, um, we know that they, in, they influence how we think about things and how we perceive things. But there's some really cool research out there, and that's just really kind of coming into play that shows that the expectations that we have on things can actually change how our body responds, not just our brain and different areas of our brain light up. So in other words, they did uh, an experiment with wine. 
had the exact same wine, but they told you know people that uh, one wine was cheap wine and one wine was this really expensive wine when in fact it was the exact same wine. And they put them in what's called an fMRI, basically a brain scan that looks at the areas of the brain that lights up when they're doing this. And so they had them drink the wine. And, and when they drink the, the cheap wine, uh, uh, a different area of their brain lit up than when they thought that it was an expensive wine. And the expensive wine, again, the area that lit up uh, was associated with higher enjoyment and variety of other things. And again, the wine itself was exactly the same. So that wasn't any different, but the way that our brain responded to that wine actually changed how it tasted for people. And so they thought that they, when you asked them, they said that the, the so-called expensive wine was much more um, tasteful. It was better wine, all of these things. And we go, oh, well, they just are making that up. No, their brain actually is saying that wine tastes differently because the different areas of their brain uh, light up. There's other research that shows the same thing happens with, um, kind of uh, gut peptides in our, in our gut when we think about if we're going to have a milkshake that's high in fat and rich and luxurious indulgent shake versus a sensible shake. And these, uh, you know, these hormones in our, in our gut that tell us if we're full or not full, they change based upon the expectation. Again, exact same shake when they do these research, but the, the measurement of this gut hormone actually changes just because of the expectation that people have. And so again, it's really important to understand how are we thinking about things? You talk about this at the beginning, right? Um, of the show is like, Hey, what, you know, let's make a great world. If we expect to have certain things, it's not saying that you can just have expect things to be great and they're going to be great, but the expectations that we have about things and the more positive we are, the more likely that they're going to have a positive result. So I always encourage people to look at the glasses half full as opposed to half empty because it actually changes how we interpret the world and how our body responds. Ladies and gentlemen, behaviorgrooves.com. Be sure to check out Kurt Nelson. He's everywhere. And Facebook listeners, you can catch the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Android listeners, go to the Google Play Store and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today. Curtis, thank you. It was my pleasure. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.